Hello, and welcome again to another episode of Exploring Mental Illness, Everything You Wanted to Know But Were Afraid to Ask. I'm Derek Mulhan, along with Carrie Ballou. Carrie, how are you today? I am fantastic. How are you today, Derek? I am good. We've got a break in the heat. We've had a heat wave here on the East Coast, so uh, it's nice out, which has been nice. I would say today probably feels like almost fallish. Almost. But yeah, nice break in the heat. You seem like you're in better spirits this go around. Yeah, it was a rough week. I mean, I work outside for baseball team filming, and the heat has just been crazy. I I had to go to the hospital on Tuesday because I dehydrated as a type 2 diabetic. I only had myself to blame, so I missed a night of work, but bounced back last night. Yeah, I mean, the season's coming to an end, and then I start at another job doing Providence College athletics as a cameraman also. So I'm very excited about starting that job. But, um, yeah, it's just, you know, this this heat. I mean, they were saying this has been one of the worst summers since, I think they said 1953. So not just the heat, the humidity and stuff and the dew points. So you just got to kind of take it in stride. But it was my own stupid fault. I was I got home and uh, I was in the cool. I didn't feel like drinking. You know, I was just nice and cool, wanted to nap, got up the next morning, fell over, took a knee, called the ambulance. They hooked me up with a bunch of IV fluids, and that was it. Call it a day. Yeah, you know, it's just, (laughs) I feel stupid, you know, because the doctor was ripping me a new one as nicely as he could. But, you know, it it, it happens. So, uh, you know, it's tough to eat or drink in the the heat, and it's just... But you know what? I'm here, and um, we've actually got a first. This is a second part. Of our a first, talk that it's we, our first second parter. Yes, our first second parter because there was so much information that we might have missed that we didn't want to skip over that we thought was too important. So we are uh, very happy that um, Megan could come back with us and explain to us and get in, into more depth about Section 35s, which we talked about, but as Carrie had stated after we went off the air. There was so much to talk about, and we immediately said, you know, we, we need to bring Megan back. Carrie, why don't you fill us in a little bit what we talked about last time and, and why Megan is back. Absolutely. So welcome, Megan. We're happy to have you. Thank you. I'm so happy to be back. Last time that you were here, we got pretty in-depth on the Section 12 process. And so for folks that may have not heard the previous podcast, uh, Section 12 is an order for an assessment, but it's not a court order. And so what it does is it allows family members and loved ones and professionals to be able to mandate that somebody be assessed mentally for services on whatever level of services that may be. And so we got pretty in-depth. We spent the whole hour talking about all different types of scenarios and what the process looks like. So oftentimes, at least in my world, I hear people confuse and interchange Section 35 and Section 12. So Megan is here today to talk a little bit more about what a Section 35 is. Right. So just for a quick review. So the Section 12 basically occurs when someone is at risk for hurting themselves, someone else, or their impairment is considered so concerning that, you know, they can't make a safe decision for themselves. So typically, Section 12 is given by a social worker, a licensed independent social worker, a physician, things like that. Typically, that person would be evaluated by a professional, and then it's just a mandate to have to go to the hospital where they're evaluated by a physician, a psychiatrist, and then it's determined where they go, whether they're allowed to go back home or admitted inpatient, things like that. The Section 35 is a little bit different. So a Section 35 is a court order 
for someone that they're going to be involuntarily admitted to receive uh, substance abuse treatment for no more than 90 days. And the only people who can petition the court for that is a spouse, a blood relative, a guardian, police officer, physician, or court official. So it's very different than the Section 12, um, where there's different people who are allowed to administer that assessment. Basically what happens is that one of those individuals go to the local court and they fill out papers, which in legal terms is to file a written petition or affidavit for an order of commitment. Is there color to this paper? I'm not sure. I've never seen a Section 35, not like the Section 12, which is pink. Exactly. Watch out for the pink paper. Yes. Um, So once a petition is filed with the court, the judge reviews the facts and decides whether or not to issue either a summons or a warrant. A summons is a written notice delivered to the person, and a warrant um, allows the police to pick the person up. If the warrant is issued, the person is picked up, uh, they will be handcuffed and taken to court and held in a waiting cell until their hearing. At that point, they are allowed to be represented by a lawyer, but the court will hear the testimony and evidence from the exam, and then they will kind of determine the individual's alcohol or substance use disorder and if they are likely to be a serious harm to themselves or others. Um, Both of those factors have to exist. So just like there's criteria for Section 12, there's criteria for Section 35. If they do not meet that criteria for commitment, then um, it won't continue. If they do meet the criteria, though, they will be transported to um, one of the programs in the state, and they will be there for no more than 90 days. So it is involuntary. So um, they're not able to kind of make the decision for themselves. And so for the facilities that they are being transported to, for instance, and we're talking about they're essentially being told they have to go detox. Absolutely right. And that's really the facilities you're talking about are our licensed and medical facilities that focus on detoxing all types of substances, I assume. Alcohol, right. opioids. Yeah, those I would say are the primary two because um, for those of you who are listening, alcohol is considered the only drug that you can die from withdrawing from because it can induce seizures, fall, hit your head very dangerous. That's why it is always recommended for someone to go to detox so that they can have the support of the medical facility because they are typically put on um, a benzodiazepine because it interacts with the same receptors as alcohol does and that allows for a safer detox process. Heroin and other opiates actually very painful withdrawal symptoms that an individual will experience, but they're not at risk for potentially dying. They may feel like they're going to die, but it won't lead to that. But typically, they are also uh, encouraged to go to detox. For other drugs, it can be very challenging to be admitted to a detox because they're not considered drugs that you have a physical withdrawal symptom from. So cocaine, for example, it's very difficult to get into a detox facility to be detoxed from cocaine because there's no physical withdrawal symptoms that are considered. Um, It's considered a mental withdrawal. So there's other barriers that can kind of play into going into a detox, but these facilities are specific facilities within the state of Massachusetts. That's interesting about the the cocaine. Is marijuana in that category as well? Like you can't 
Or yeah. can you, do you physically detox from no, marijuana? No, you can't. I, you won't meet uh, a detox level of care for marijuana. According to the insurance companies? Inter- incur- I would assume so. I don't. I haven't ever looked too much into that when I've never had one of my clients request that service yet. But I would say that they're not going to experience a withdrawal symptom. They're going to have more of a mental withdrawal symptom similar to cocaine. So it's interesting. I uh, You mentioned before about withdrawal from opioids and, uh, you know, what, what you're talking about. Some folks may have heard the term dope sickness, mm. which is what that feeling is when someone is withdrawing from an opioid. It was interesting at our drop-in center, uh, we had a fantastic presentation by a local agency about uh, Narcan and, and informational and training. And one of the examples that she had given, she was talking about an individual who she worked with, who at one point they were such a heavy user that they no longer were using and shooting up to get high. It was literally to prevent them from being sick. Absolutely. And that's what you're going to hear from most individuals who are dependent on opiates. They will say to you at some point, I was no longer using to get high. I couldn't stand the experience of the withdrawal. Um, I went to an amazing training in Worcester maybe six months ago, and the man who was running the training said to us, have you ever had the flu? I have not had the flu, so knock on wood, that won't happen. But everyone in the room was like, yeah. Just jinx yourself now. I know. (laughs) This is the winter. Um, And he said, so imagine you have the flu, times it by a 1,000, and then light yourself on fire. He goes, and that is what they are experiencing when they're going through those withdrawal symptoms because they're so severe. It's not a joke. That dope sickness is very real. And um, I think all of us know when we don't feel well, we want to feel better. So um, the cycle's very dangerous. Now, is that why there are so many methadone clinics out there? Because these people need something to survive on? You know, I think the methadone clinics, yeah, they're definitely there to help support the withdrawal process because the methadone will allow someone not to experience the withdrawal symptoms, but it also allows them to continue um, that forward progress, whether it's employment, education, things like that. They can function throughout the day. You know, someone who's taking the correct dose of methadone is going to present normally, if you will. You know, you're not you're not going to see them nodding out or anything like that. They're going to be presenting just fine. It's when their dose is off that you may be able to see a difference. And that's why they go in daily and they're assessed by, you know, medical professionals. I have a very a split point of view uh, what you mentioned before about Narcan. I've been to Narcan trainings. We filmed them. You know, I'm a huge fan of live PD. I watch it every Friday and Saturday night. And, you know, they save the people with the Narcan, and then they'll be on the show the very next week. Hey, thanks for saving my life. They get the Narcan. They're released. They're back on the street. They know that if they overdose, the Narcan's going to be there. It seems to me, I, see, it, it, it's a slippery slope because, I mean, you know, the Narcan is there to help them, but then they don't get the help. They just release. They give them a, you know, all right, you're okay. The Narcan saved your life. Here's a card. You might want to go into into rehab and get this taken care of. And most of them don't. Most of them are, are released out. Do you think there's going to be a law that's going to change that? Like, hey, we've already narcan you five times. It's time for you to get help. And we're going to mandatorily put you in to maybe one of these situations on a on a, on a 35. When you say released out, do you mean like they're revived from the Narcan and by the police and then they get to walk away? Usually what happens is... they have to go to the emergency room. Right. right. They, okay. they, they Narcan them, they put them in the ambulance, yeah. they go to the hospital, they get checked out, make sure they're okay, and then they're released. Sure. And you'll see the same people on, on the show the very next week. They're always back on the streets. 
Yeah, I mean, I think what the difference there is, so so you know how last week we spoke about the Section 12? That is for psychiatric purposes, basically. So the suicidality, the homicidality, or the impaired judgment. Medical professionals, mental health professionals have more ability to assess for and deem appropriate. In what you're referring to is if we wanted someone to have the Section 35, that's going to be up to that person's family members, that list of people I had mentioned earlier, because... Unless someone is in the emergency department presenting at risk for harming themselves, others, or severe impaired judgment, we're not able to necessarily hold them. So um, although we could assume that they're at risk because of the substance use, it doesn't always meet that level of criteria. So it's really about looking into... Where are they in their stages of change? Um, Because we want to keep in mind that involuntary commitment, we really want it to be the last resort for treatment. Because if an individual is willing to enter treatment um, voluntarily, there are a number of programs available. But also, we typically see a higher level of engagement in treatment, meaning they're ready to really kind of hear it. doesn't mean it's going to be lasting that first time. It still may take a couple detoxes or a certain level of more intensive programs, but we see that the outcomes are often better when someone is motivated and willing to engage in treatment versus this involuntary commitment. So I think, I'm sure for viewers and and just people of the community, it might be frustrating that we're seeing people being Narcaned repeatedly the social worker in me wants to say there's got to be a degree of patience because if they're not ready to change or their family members are not going to commit them, our hands are kind of tied. So I think the best thing for us to do is just to be there as I would rather than be revived than lose another life to this opioid crisis that we're experiencing as a country. Um, So now we have a different story that just happened in Taunton. A man just went to court. He overdosed in his car with his eight-year-old in the back seat. So now can you explain to us what happens with this? Did he pass away from the overdose? No, no, they they revived him with Narcan, but now he has to go to court. The child is in protective custody. So this is a whole different set of circumstances because he had the responsibility of somebody and he's put somebody else in harm's way. Absolutely. I mean, whenever children are involved, it's another level that... um, social workers, mental health counselors have to take into consideration. So although we're talking about, you know, Section 12s and Section 35s, I also have a state expectation that if I think a child is at risk or is being neglected, abused, it is my job to file what we call a 51A, which uh, goes to the Department of Children and Families. And it's a documented of my concerns, what I'm observing, things like that. So in what you're referring to in that situation, um, you know, DCF is going to get involved because that child was at risk. Um, They were being neglected and the guardian was unable to care for that child. That goes for any family member experiencing substance use issues. If it's alcohol, marijuana, like any of the drugs, if you are the sole caretaker of a child at any point, you are not to be under the influence in the instance that that child starts to run a really high fever or breaks a bone. I'm not a parent, so there's probably a lot of reasons you might have to go to the emergency department, but if you're unable to transport your child in that situation, that is considered neglect. Yeah, they they showed a picture. I mean, he was lucky. He was pulled, he had pulled over and he was out cold. I mean, just slumped. And you saw a picture of the, you know, they blurred the, the, the child's face in a car seat, thank God. 
he was, you know, dead to the world until they until they brought him back. It's really scary, you know, but hopefully, you know, if DCF decides to remain with that family to provide them the additional support that they may need, they will develop what we call a service plan and they will hopefully address that with the guardian and the child to ensure that the family is safe, happy and healthy. You know, there are great resources to families. To touch upon a little bit what we talked about before in terms of the question of when is it appropriate or is there ever going to be a point where there's going to be a decision-making process around when and when not to administer Narcan to somebody based on the number of times that it has been administered. I've actually had that question come up a lot. I've actually had that question come up a lot when I was done radio interviews. And a lot of it, times those questions come from concerned taxpayers and community members. I've heard a lot of different scenarios. And it's interesting because I'm a big advocate of perspective, right? So when someone says that to me, I, I, I understand exactly where they're coming from. They don't get it. Why are we wasting resources and time and energy? These people obviously want to, people think that folks obviously want to hurt themselves or they're ignorant enough to put themselves in that situation by using in the first place. So I, I hear that. My first thought is always, but we have to be mindful that someone's mother, daughter, cousin, brother, sister, that is somebody's loved one. That's usually my first typical response. But I've thought about this a lot, and I feel like one perspective that we fail or negate is the fact that there's a lot of circumstances in life where we could say, I don't think your life is worth saving. And do we have that right to say that, right? So no, we don't, we don't have the right to play God. What I was meaning was, I mean, they've got medical records on all these people. I'm just thinking of a better, a better system. I don't think it's a waste of resources. But when you're Narcanning somebody six, I mean, and they have the records of people, you know, they had said this guy had been Narcan three times already from Taunton. I mean, and when you're being Narcan five or six times, I, I was just trying to think of a, a better way to get them the help that they need, not just... All right, we Narcan you. You're good to go. He has a card. You know, at some point, somebody needs to step in and say, you know what, you need help. We're going to put you on a on a mandatory 90 day rehab or a 90 day detox, so that we don't have to keep saving you. Because one of these times, we might not be there, and you might be too far gone, and we're not going to get you. So ultimately, that brings us back to the topic at hand, right? So I'm a police officer. I know John Smith has been Narcan now six times, and it's, it's happening again. And so as an officer, if I feel like at this point, maybe it could be the, how consecutive and close and in time frame that these been Narcaned, it could be a series of things. I may consider Section 35-ing this person because, hey, I just had a Narcan you once a week for the past six weeks. You're obviously a danger to yourself because you've almost died six times or somebody else. And so that could be. So, okay. yeah, I mean, it definitely can be, but I think what the barrier there is like that harm to self. Yes, the overdose to us is the harm to self, but we also need to see if that is the criteria of the court. Do you know what I mean? Because they yes. might just be looking to get high and not realize that it could kill them. You know, like you said with the cocaine, the cocaine gives you a high, then you come off of it, no residual effects until later with your heart and stuff like that. But that's long term. It's not short term right away. I can see how that might be a difficult thing if you Narcan somebody and, you know, they're just, they're just looking to get high. 
And I think the other thing from my understanding of the Section 35, and like I said, this is not necessarily, um, obviously nothing I've ever had to done yet in my own life. Um, but I think that the other part of it is the person has to have had like a substance use disorder, right? It's not just someone got drunk one time and got a little rowdy. I don't even I don't even know if do they even need to have a formal substance use diagnosis or do they just have a have to have enough history documented history that it would substantiate a diagnosis right so I think like the Narcan six times would probably substantiate that but um I just meant like you know it's not just someone had a bad experience that's it's gonna not a leave. one and done yeah exactly it, there has to be the history uh the chronic history that would suggest that there's the disorder absolutely but I don't know what the best process would be to get them the treatment you know I don't know what it's like for police officers to um what happens when they petition the court versus if a family member does. I, it would be interesting to know. Or if they collaborate with the family right. or with the community. And I think that this is why it's brought before a judge because there's so many moving parts, right? Especially nowadays. So what happens if, say, John Smith, since he's my obviously my favorite person. <laughs> so say John Smith is narcan six times, but let's just say they dig a little deeper and you know the reason for his being narcan so many times could be the fact that bad batches he wasn't intending to hurt himself he wasn't trying to he has an addiction right which is a mental illness absolutely oh and that's where we get that fine line between when something is section 12 and when section 35 it really comes down to to need and which, which one trumps the other right but if he ends up getting like a bad batch of heroin, say it's been laced with fentanyl, carfentanil, then there wasn't an intention with the overdose. He just thought he was just getting high. Or if somebody is a chronic pot smoker and it's laced with something that causes an overdose, which has been happening. That just happened in Connecticut. 134 overdoses. 134 people were narcan on the New in, Haven in, Green. In, 30, in 36 hours in New Haven because a guy was selling stuff. He was selling synthetic marijuana laced with fentanyl, and they had cameras there, and people were just dropping left and right. They had over 200 ambulances there. I'm sure these people had not intended to almost die that day. They were just looking to smoke some marijuana, and this idiot decides to lace it. The public can carry Narcan, too. They have public trainings. Uh, I have Narcan in my bag. I do, too. Just in Me case. too. I just got my Narcan. We were speaking about, you know, that the person needs to meet the criteria for a substance use disorder and that likelihood of serious harm. The likelihood of serious harm is similar to the Section 12, but as it is only related to substance use. So that um, suicidality, homicidality, um, or the really impaired judgment, again. So that is actually part of the court's criteria, but it is only directly related to substance use, which would be very challenging to determine, I think, in the moment sometimes, if there's not that chronic history. So I often deal with that fine line because I work for a psych hospital. And back when it was first established, and it was Fuller Sanitarium in 1906. Yikes. Yeah, that's I know. Not that's not a good word. <laughs> but back then, it was yeah, appropriate. Because back then, they drilled holes in people's heads to let it, out the mental illness because of the I'm evil sure spirits. I'm sure those walls could talk. Back when it was Fuller Sanitarium, do I think that they were dealing with as much dual diagnosis? I think there was some, but I don't think that it was as prevalent as it is now. So our services and our hospital and our program and our consumers and our patients 
what that population and person looks like has changed so significantly over the years. So for me, you know, here we're talking about the difference between a Section 35 and a Section 12. And the folks I'm interacting with really have struggles with both. They have the psychiatric condition. They have a psychiatric disorder, whether it's not, it's diagnosed. And then they have the chronic substance use history because you know what? I mean, self-medication is not so unusual for people with a mental health history, especially if they started young and maybe their their onset of real onset of symptoms didn't come until later. Or they had something traumatic in their childhood and they just... And we're trying to self-soothe. Absolutely. There's such a huge correlation between the two. Absolutely. And I think what's, you know, important for people to know that even though the Section 35 is, quote-unquote, solely related to the substance use, these facilities that people are transported to, they can do um, co-occurring mental health. So, you know, they're not going to these programs solely for substance use. They can go just for substance use, but if they do have co-occurring, they're going to receive both programs. Because they're right in the middle. They're caught in between a 35 and a 12. Absolutely. So, right. Exactly. And if they were determined, you know, not to have the substance use, then someone would likely uh, do a Section 12. So I have an example of a Section 12, Section 35 example. So not so long ago, uh, I got a call from a law enforcement agency asking for some assistance, some guidance. They had an individual who had chronic mental health issues, but also was an alcoholic And when they would drink, they would become suicidal, self-injurious. There was a determination and a question, is this person a Section 12 or a Section 35? The bigger issue is they become, their mental health symptoms um, exasperate when they drink. And so a Section 12, there was no guarantee that they did get any more, even if they got into our hospital. There was no guarantee that they would get a full amount of opportunity to necessarily detox based on a Section 12. There was not even an, honestly, there wasn't even a, a guarantee they would be approved for a Section 12. So then when we thought about it, I said, well, why not a Section 35? Because what you're telling me is that when this person gets extremely drunk, Then you see the mental health issues coming out. The person had a gun. They were going to take their own lives. And this happens when they get drunk. And so even though the Section 12 didn't come into play, though they obviously have mental health issues, that Section 35 covered that need for the detox and assessment and addressing their mental health. You know, it's not common that we see someone with just a substance use diagnosis. I mean, they typically are co-occurring. For the most part. I mean, but there are times where someone is just going to have a substance use diagnosis. It does happen. You know, they're like, I'm not depressed. I'm not anxious. I'm, I don't have bipolar. I'm, I'm not any of these things, but I just drink alcohol, you know? That's how my mom was. My, it, mom, my mom was just, she, she drank. She drank and she was a drunk. And this year she'll be 23 years clean and sober. Congratulations to her. Um, but it was just, she liked to drink. That right. was it. She she didn't have any mental illness, no no problems, and she just she was a drinker. But I think for what Carrie's speaking to, when that person became intoxicated, we saw these other behaviors that put them at risk for harming themselves, and that's when the Section thirty five is so appropriate because maybe when they were sober, you never saw the suicidal ideation. I'm not sure all the specifics of that case. So that's when a Section thirty five really does become so appropriate. 
an actress just yesterday from ER was she was she was killed because she had been drinking and she had mental illness and she came out she she was drunk they discovered that she had mental illness afterwards and she came out to the cops with a BB gun and they didn't know it was a BB gun and they had to shoot her dead and she was on ER at the George Clooney time, uh, I think it was, they said 94 to 98. And they said she had underlying mental health issues. And when she came out drunk, it exasperated everything. And she comes out at the cops pointing a, you know, BB gun, which they didn't realize was a BB gun, told her to stop belligerent, drunk, mental issues aside. And now she's gone. And unfortunately, those are circumstances where both components are playing a factor. And it happens a lot. And, and you know what, and, and Megan's right, I do get a lot of phone calls from the community. They'll call me up at the hospital and they'll be like, I have a question, this is my situation. Um, I'll get a lot of calls asking about detox. And so my first question is always, so what's going on? And so I get a little bit more history because I can pretty much guide and guess whether or not our partial hospitalization program is appropriate, whether they should come as a walk-in and be assessed for inpatient. Do they need in-home therapy? So for me, I've actually encountered those op folks where there was no diagnosis of mental illness. They had an addiction. They could have started that addiction long after any sort of onset of a mental illness, right? They could have started drinking in their 30s, never had a mental health history. They could have a successful career and a family, but they can't stop drinking and it's affecting them medically or it's affecting their marriage. And Everybody's so, got issues. We just don't know what they are. Exactly. And so those are times where I'm just like, you need a straight detox. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, I think when people are thinking about addiction, you know, that question of why you were Narcaned and now I, I, we're doing it again. What is this process? What are people experiencing? We have to remember addiction is a chronic relapsing brain disease that's characterized by compulsive drug seeking and use despite harmful consequences. When you are at that level where you're spending money you don't have or doing damage to relationships, no one really wakes up in the morning and says, like, how can I upset the people I love more? They need to use because that is what their brain is telling them to do. It's not a question of willpower because what you find when treating people with substance use, they do want to stop, but their brain is conditioned to desire the drug. So it's just a repeated chronic brain disease that we really have to be aware of. It's not, I could stop if I want to. And I think it's very empowering when people can understand that this is not just your willpower. Do you know what I mean? It's like, you do need help to get through this process. Um, and with the right tools, you can definitely make progress. So I have a question for both of you. And this falls in with everything that we're talking about. And it just, it, it pisses me off to no end. Whenever there's a mass shooting, something horrible happens, the first thing they say is the person's mentally ill. Can somebody just be angry and shoot somebody up and not have a mental illness? I mean, because every time you see something on the news, well, this person, they're going to look into the mental illness because they shot up this place. I mean, is anger a mental illness? Or could somebody just be so pissed off at somebody, they said, you know what, screw this, I'm going to get my revenge I'm just going to go out and I'm going to kill a bunch of people. Does that necessarily mean they're mentally ill? I, yeah, absolutely. I'm trying to really think through my response, to be honest. So I have never done a lot of personal research on mass shooters. 
and I'm sure there is plenty of research to be had. What I would say is that when we are feeling anger, we are more likely to act impulsively. And if you can become so impulsive or so planned out to do that, I would say that something, you are experiencing something. I would not say that a typical person um, would resolve their anger in that way. And that was I'm a not, fantastic response. That was really good. Because that's exactly like I, I, I'm on your same wavelength, but I feel like you just said it perfectly. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure someone could be that angry, but I think there's something there. But like I said, I would have to do a little bit more of the research to see what findings that the other professionals have done, because I think every other mental health diagnosis that we see, there's consistency. You, you meet a diagnosis because of criteria. That criteria came from years and years of people coming in to see professionals saying, I'm experiencing X, Y, and Z. They say this is the diagnosis that that fits with and so forth. So I bet if we looked at all of those maths shooters, we would see similarities somewhere along the lines. And I would suggest that that probably supports something. I would agree. Yeah. I think that we need to, perspective-wise, because, you know, that's my favorite thing, we have to understand, too, that when it comes to things like Megan said, again, you really did do a fantastic job. But for folks listening, I think we also have to understand that there's there's such a, a range when it comes to mental health and mental illness. From the, the level of what you're talking about to get someone to a point where they are able to plan and execute something like a mass shooting to the individual who, you know, lost their favorite pet and has been considered depressed or has anxiety around a certain issue. That's, that is also mental illness related. But those are two very completely different aspects and completely different viewpoints under one, one word, one title, mental illness. So that's why we use things like chronic mental illness and, you know, and, Addiction is considered a mental illness, isn't it? In the is it in the DSM? Absolutely. Okay, so and that's one of the things that you know we talk a lot about at, at Fuller is the fact that the folks that we're dealing with have not just one but two chronic conditions: mental illness and addiction. When we talked about the Narcan, and I'm not even referring to the Narcan question that you had brought up, but but when I get other folks that say to me, why bring them back? What's the point? They obviously want to die. It'd be like me turning my back on somebody who tries to attempt suicide. It's just, it's, they can't necessarily control what is driving them to that behavior. I don't think the drug addicts want to die. I think they're just, you know, these people are on the street, they're looking to score their next fix, and it's a horrible lifestyle to live. I don't think they're looking to kill themselves because they could, they could find easier ways to do it if they really thought, but they're just driven by finding that next high. And it's it's prevalent, like I said, on this live PD show, and it's, and it's sad sometimes. And they're chemically driven. Yeah. Well, that's the thing, again, and I'm going to go back to that. This is a chronic relapsing brain disease. The brain is being wired to search for that substance use or that substance, um, I would say that when people have, A, decided to potentially make some changes in their life or just hit rock bottom, I don't think that they want to be going through that lifestyle anymore. It's hard. There are a lot of negative experiences you have when you're addicted to a substance. I mean, and what you find in readings is there's two outcomes, death or jail. And again, no one is really looking for those two things. So I think when we look back and people can understand that this is a 
chronic relapsing brain disease. Right, because that's that's all they know. That's all they know is wandering the streets looking for their next fix. That's what the brain is looking for is to make sure that they feel better. It's kind of like if you really love chocolate cake or something and you see it, you really, really want it. It's kind of a poor example, but you know what I mean. Your brain sees it, they want it. It's 100% more extreme. Well, I I can take that chocolate cake to a level that I know about. I want chocolate cake. I'm a type 2 diabetic. So unless I give myself more insulin... I can't have chocolate cake. Right. And it's not good to take extra insulin to have chocolate cake. You just have to not take it because you're risking, I'm taking a risk. Right. Did I take enough insulin? Did I not take enough insulin? And that could ultimately lead to diabetic coma, diabetic shock, and ultimately death. You know what comes to mind when we have this discussion, and I think that you're, the point that you made, Megan, is, is really a significant one that people don't think about enough when they hear the word addiction, that it's truly a chemical addiction, that people are injecting chemicals in their body that are affecting their brain. Chem- their brain chemistry physically changes. Absolutely. It it's, not, it's not like it's a want and it reminds me of, I don't even know if there's a movie out there, but I'm sure there is, if any of you movie buffs actually can think of it. But how many movies have you seen where, like, I'm thinking maybe Total Recall or something, where you take a chemical and it completely changes who you are and you go from, like, a perfectly normal, sane person to this beast, kind of like the Hulk, right? In a way. That's not quite what I'm thinking, but... No, but it was that's, very, it, that's a good scenario because Bruce Banner was trying to, to lock into superhuman strength that these people did when with an adrenaline rush and he used the gamma rays and it obviously went horribly wrong so he was looking for something you know and it did it it turned him into this this horrible monster and he was just looking to try to get more out of his physicality he's playing god and playing with the chemistry of his body and his brain but there's also a show on tlc called my 600 pound life with people with food addiction yep so, I mean, it's not only drugs. I mean, you got to remember that there's food addiction. I mean, shopping gambling. addictions. Um, I'm gambling. Sorry? Gambling addictions. I know all too well. I was in a program for five years for gambling addiction. When I got released from the uh, from the Paw Sox my first time around, I would get my, my unemployment checks. And I'd be like, bet big to win big. And then I realized I had a problem. And I haven't, you know, I can go into a casino and not put a dime in because it's such a waste of money. Sure. And I mean, I think that's the big thing. I'm sure at some point you knew that the behavior wasn't giving you the outcome that you wanted, but that wasn't enough to change the behavior. So that's why you hear this whole, you know, you have to hit rock bottom to make change. What is your motivator? Where did you get to a place in your life where you said, I don't want to do this anymore? Um, And that takes a lot of time. I think the average time for a detox for a person is 10 times. So if you think about that, you had to go in through detox 10 times, refer to another program, um, but that's all part of the recovery process. And I think we have patients for mental health. Someone has depression, someone's experiencing anxiety, we'll want them to get the help they want, but with addiction, it's like, get over it, figure it out, stop doing it. Well, can we say to a depressed person, stop being depressed? Oh, I hate that. I'm like, thank you, Dr. Phil. You know, stop being But think anxious. about that. Yeah. Right. Just stop. Cheer up. Thanks. Stop being an addict. Right. So when we can look at mental health in a lens of support, available resources and things like that, we do need to shift it to this to addiction because it is the same thing. Just like depression has a chemical imbalance in your brain. Your brain has changed. Um, yes, people will say, well, they chose to try the drug. You know what? They did. And the reality is that's the first time you used it. You didn't know. You can be in a group of people and one person 
So say there's the four of us in this room, right? We all drink alcohol for the first time. It's a good chance one of us is going to become an addict and no one else is going to be faced by it. And it's then once you try drinking, maybe then you're comfortable to try. So I always say the gateway drug is really cigarettes and alcohol, not marijuana like people try and Cigarettes and alcohol go hand in hand. I know people who only smoke when they drink alcohol. Well, I say it's the gateway drug because uh, they're both legal, so they're more readily available, whether it's in your home or down the street. So being in Massachusetts, so you can add marijuana we to the will. List. We will. But it's more likely that a child will try their parents' alcohol first before going to find someone who's like dealing marijuana. But it's once you get comfortable with a cigarette, right? Oh, I tried a cigarette, nothing bad happened. I'm going to try alcohol. I drank a beer. Nothing bad happened. I smoked some weed. Like, nothing bad happened. And then they continue this experimentation because it felt good for them, right? Their body was like, oh, I like the altering effects of substances. But that's when they have to get more and more because their body gets immune to Right, and they're also levels. more comfortable trying drugs. When you don't have an initial negative response, it's like, oh, this was okay. Nothing bad happened. So then they might try cocaine or heroin, and it's that's how we really see the escalation process. It's not just like someone woke up today and said, I'm going to try heroin for the first time. That's not typically the route. I'm sure there's individual experiences of that. But. And what's interesting is, obviously, you made a great example. Not every person who drinks alcohol becomes an addict. But you're right. Folks may be more susceptible to climb that ladder of trying to reach the next high. Unfortunately, the higher you go on the ladder, then the more Russian roulette that you're playing in terms of the, what you're willing to try, right? So, yeah, maybe with alcohol, you may, you may or may not become an addict over time. It really depends upon your chemistry, your lifestyle. There's a lot of factors. But hey, guess what? The likelihood that someone's going to try heroin and walk away and be like, you know what? That scares me. That I wasn't would, for yeah, me. No, I would never. That, no, but that's that's not as realistic. The likelihood of someone just walking away, yeah. all of us in the room could shoot up right now. And we're probably all going to become addicted to it because that's how that is how powerful or we could all die or we could all die. But that's how powerful the chemical is that draws the addiction. And let's be real. You talked about food and gambling, things that you don't necessarily have. That's an actual chemical that you're injecting in your body. But they still are behaviors that are influenced by dopamine. And that's right, what it comes when, down when to. I, when I won, I was euphoric. When I lost, I was depressed. It's the feel good. We're addicted to the feel good. So lots of moving parts. And it's a cycle, right? So say you did start this detox process. Get through detox. You decide to go to a partial program. And you start to feel really good. There's initial we um, call it the pink cloud experience where you're like super motivated. You can't imagine ever using again. Um, and it's actually kind of a risky space during recovery. Um, some people move through it great, others don't, and then we'll see a relapse. So then we had someone on a high, right? So they're going up, then they use and they drop, and then what do you do once you drop? You use again because you felt better, and then you drop. So it's like this seesaw effect of highs and lows, and it's just that cycle, continuous cycle, trying to make myself feel better, like you're saying. But that's really what we're seeing for the most part. There's a quote I always remember. It's funny because it was from a wrestler, Macho Man Randy Savage, and he was cutting a promo. He was talking on TV. This has stuck with me, and I and I think about it all the time. He had just lost the world title for any wrestling fans out there. But he said something very poignant, which I was I was like, wow, that's pretty deep just to 
satiate a wrestling audience. He said, you must sink to the lowest depths before you can achieve the greatest heights. And that's where when I'm dealing with my mental illness, I'm like, well, I'm not, I'm not even close. I've already been to the bottom. So I look at my peaks and valleys and I have to realize, you know, where they are as far as, you know, the, and I'm sure other people have to look at that too, because you just said they're up at the greatest height, then they're, they're down and they want to get back up, but they're doing it in the wrong way. Right. All right. Well, we are about an hour in, and I have to say, again, another great episode and a lot to talk about. It feels like this hour goes by. Megan, thank you so much for coming out a second time and joining us and talking about sectioning. And did you? Ha- what are you thinking? Did you have a good experience? This was great. Absolutely. You're thank you so much. I have oh. to say, isn't she a natural? Um, now would be a good time to, if you would like, um, tell people about resources, um, phone numbers, websites that you want to put out there for people who are listening. Great. Thank you. So um, just for anyone who's listening and feels that they're in need of any mental health or substance use treatment, um, I work for South Bay Community Services. And you can go to our website, southbaycommunityservices.com, to find a site located near you. We are across the entire state of Massachusetts, with two sites also in Connecticut for early intervention. But we do have day programs, early childhood, children's behavioral health initiative, and outpatient services available to you guys. Um, And you can call our referral line at 1-800-244-4691. And for folks that are interested in uh, learning more about our services over at Fuller Hospital, um, so Fuller is an inpatient and outpatient psychiatric Community Hospital located in Attleboro, Massachusetts. We serve individuals who have um, dual diagnosis, adults and children with straight psychiatric um, needs as well as, again, a dual diagnosis, which is also substance abuse. And we also provide services for individuals who have an intellectual disability and are also suffering from a psychiatric crisis. For information about our services, you can go to www.fullerhospital.com. That's F-U-L-L-E-R, or you can contact us at 1-508-761-8500, or if you want a catchier number, 1-833-3-FULLER. We'll direct you to our hospital, and you can always ask for me, Carrie Ballou, and I'm more than happy to talk with you. In addition to the hospital, we have an awesome, awesome drop-in center here in the Attleboro, Massachusetts area. It's once a month at the end of the month on a Wednesday night from 5.30 to 8. It's supported by the Greater Attleboro Recovery Network. We offer resources such as Megan um, and Fuller and other great community resources around mental health, substance abuse, and domestic violence. And that's held at 505 North Main Street in Attleboro, Mass. And that's the Murray Unitarian Universalist Church. And for questions about that, you can go to our Facebook page at Attleboro Recovery. And that's it. Derek. I want to thank Megan again. Carrie, thank you for being here also. Um, Just some podcast uh, information. If you have any questions that you'd like us to answer, um, we have an email at mentalillness at wairradio.com. You can hear us every Monday night at 6 o'clock, which is uh, at wairradio.com or at wairadio1320 a.m. in the Attleboro area. We are also on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and TuneIn. We also have a Facebook uh, group page, uh, Search Exploring Mental Illness, and that will give you um, a bunch of information there. Once again, I want to thank Megan and and Carrie for being here today, and um, 
Once again, everything that we've described, whether you're in state, out of state, no matter where you are, there is always help to be gotten. So if you don't feel right, if you see somebody who doesn't feel right, call 911, call the police. That's what they're there for. They, they want to help people. Um, you are not alone is not a gimmick. It's not a catchphrase. It truly is what this podcast is about. That's why we have the guests. That's why we share this information and why we are so open about it. So until uh, we meet again, uh, be well and take care of yourself and each other. The contents of the Exploring Mental Illness podcast provides general information and discussion about medicine, health, and related subjects. The content provided in this podcast, its associated website, and any linked material are not intended and should not be construed as medical advice. This podcast should not be used in any legal capacity. No guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of any statements or opinions made on this podcast or its associated website. If the listener or any other person has a medical concern, they should consult an appropriately licensed healthcare professional. The views expressed on this podcast do not represent the views or opinions of Attleboro Access Cable Systems, Arbor Fuller Hospital, or their parents' corporations. The contents of the Exploring Mental Illness podcast and its associated website are copyrighted Attleboro Access Cable Systems. The podcast may be redistributed in accordance with Creative Commons License 4.0.